SaaS Insiders, I am genuinely happy that you're listening to this episode right now and you're not missing out because this one is gold. I'm your host Vlad Hu and today I'm interviewing Aham Eric Susi. He's a founder of Stomio and today we're going to be talking a lot about his mission, vision, how he manages the company. But what's important as well is his really deep experience with fundraising and some of the wisdom that he's sharing on this session that will definitely level up your game or at least give you some inspiration on how to approach fundraising for your SaaS business. Just listen to this short 20 second episode to give a bite-sized taste on what we're talking about. Yeah, and fundraising is actually a kind of like a, a momentum sport if you think about it. Like if even if you pitch to somebody in your network and they they say if you're raising half a million dollars and they you're able to close a hundred K from them, you can go to the next investor and, and now your pitch is different. At the end of the pitch, it's like hey, we're raising five hundred K. We already closed 100K, by the way. And so that they said, okay, well, I'm not the first check and somebody else believes in this team. Okay, let me write 50K or 25K. <laughs> and then the next one is going to be easier. The next one's going to be easier. And guess what? When you get 400K, you're just looking to close that last 100K in the, in the round. This becomes easier and easier. Now, and that's only 20 seconds. Imagine like how much value we have in today's half an hour conversation. So if you're preparing for the gym, for the ride somewhere in your car or anywhere else where you have... 15 to 20 minutes of your time, of your mental bandwidth to listen and get value, this is the right episode. Let's get to the full session. This episode is sponsored by the SaaS Insiders Studio. We help SaaS founders build their minimum viable products, MVPs, launch quickly, find a product market fit, and grow from there. SaaS Insider Studio works with non-technical founders that are on the pre-seed or seed stage to help them execute on their product vision. To learn more, go to my LinkedIn profile that you can find in the description to this episode and shoot me a direct message there. All right, let's jump straight into today's episode. SaaS Insiders, I welcome you to this episode of our show. Today, I'm joined by Ahem Eric Susi, and today we're going to talk about his company, his journey, how he got started, when is the right time to get funded, and all of the interesting jazz that he's been through, and just a nice conversation with a fellow SaaS founder. With that said, Ahem, I welcome you to the show. Oh, thanks, Vlad. Thanks for having me. For those who might not know you yet, if you could give maybe 60 to 100 second introduction of who you are, what you're working on, where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Aham, co-founder CEO of an early stage startup called Stomio. Check us out, stomio.io. We are a platform for B2B product teams to help capture voice of customer at scale during product development. Um, so normally in the B2B environment, you have slightly longer development cycles and you need to incorporate your voice of customer throughout the process. Most of companies have what they call a beta test uh, phase or a private preview phase. It depends on the business that incorporates a large amount of their customers to get their feedback and test it in real life. That process, from my past experience, is chaotic. And through Stomio, we help manage it and give the product team the tool to really focus on what matters, which is engage with their customers and analyze the feedback. And we take the mundane out of that process, make it very automated and very fun for everybody. We're 
early stage, so we're pre-seed going to seed. We launched August last year. We have, you know, early stages of, I would say, momentum and traction and monetization. Um, and we're about to launch our seed round uh, soon. So it's been an exciting journey. One question I wanted to ask, and the reason I'm asking is because SaaS and Sargers collaborate often. Sometimes they try each other's products. For your product, for Stomio, is it is it for the beta testing, like for the MVPs? What kind of stage of, of the product company is perfect to use because your software? Great question. Yeah. So if you think about the size of the company, right, usually in any company lifecycle, you have various stages and various requirements. That would classify super early stage companies like us you probably need to move much faster than having a very well you know, established process and beta testing cycle. So you just want to get something out, get a couple of feedback points, iterate if it makes sense, and keep going, keep going, keep going until you get some traction. So I would say like early stage is you're better off just talking to people one-on-one. It's much faster uh, feedback loop and they will give you some feedback. And then you start to scale the, the company. So you start to the early stage growth, right? So you get to, I would say, between 20 to 100 employees at the company. You're still moving really fast. You still have some chaos in the process and whatnot. You probably have a big initiative in beta, but you're probably not thinking about how to establish an infrastructure, how to capture voice of customer at scale. So that's the start of what we can help, I would say, when you start to get to that 100 employee mark. And then from there on, from between 100 employees to like 10,000 employees that we see our target audience, our current customer base, is when you have an established product function in the company, you would have, you know, one or two product managers or maybe more. You have your customer base that you need to take them on the journey for big initiatives, right? But I would say also like the, the, the decision to go with a beta program versus not a beta program depends also on the size of the initiative. If you have, you know, changing the button from one place to another place, you don't need any of that. You just, you know, do A-B tests and see what clicks and monitor behavior, changing colors or whatnot. These are small additions. Adding a graph here and a graph there is not a big deal. But if you have a big initiative, right, like you are extending your product offerings with a, a new different offering that can complement your existing product offering. That's a big initiative, right? You need to make sure that that investment that you're making is going to pay off with your existing customers and users. So that's why you need to have a voice of customer program during development, right? So you can bring your users and customers along with you as you develop and make sure that you're actually solving the pain point that they have or, the, or maybe it's a new customer base and you're actually building the experience that they would enjoy and they would pay for. Because that's at the end of the day, there's a return on that investment. And in the current environment, for example, the ROI, like where, where your investment dollars as a business is very much top of mind because you don't want to spend, you know, three to six months of your valuable time when your product team and your UX team and your developers team and your product marketing team to launch something that is not going to yield the results that you think it's going to yield. So I would say that's between 100 to 10,000 employees. You need to start to think about voice of customer at scale, and you need to start to bring them in, in a more structured way. And that's where Storm is going to help you out. Awesome. Ahem, it feels like I almost like pulled the pitch out of you by one question. And it tells, <laughs> me, tells me you're very passionate about this. It, it really does. Speaking about that, how did you start your company? Because founders, SaaS and that listen to us, they're either already started and having their way growing yeah. to traction or 
planning to get started. What was your process? Because since I think you've incorporated in mid 2021, can you share a little bit like how the idea turned into, into an MVP basically? Oh, awesome. Yeah. Happy to do so. So I yeah, came from my experience. So I was in product management in B2B companies for about 10 years before starting Stonier. And that built a lot of hardware, built a lot of software, built a lot of firmware, built a lot of any, everything but platform, which is we're building now. And every time we do go through a development process, right, we had to go through a beta program, whether it's a one-month program or three-month or sometimes a year, depending on the complexity of the product. And every time we get to, the, to that stage, I was just looking at all the chaos that's happening and I'll say that there's got to be a, a better way to do it, right? So you end up, here's, here's what a life usually without Scrum you have uh, for the product team. Yeah, you would have, you know, a spreadsheet that uh, basically organizes everything that you need about the beta program. Who are the customers that you targeted? Who actually accepted? Who signed up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you start manually doing tracking in a spreadsheet, right? And then you would have a mailer that you establish. Let's say you have Google Mail. You say, okay, you want to beta at whatever products.com for people to send you feedback, right? So that's a feedback mechanism. Then you need to send them some sort of instructions, right? To say like, okay, in order to test this product, you need to click here and sign up there. I want to feedback on this and that. So you send them, you know, probably a PDF or another spreadsheet that they need to follow. And then in order to capture that feedback systematically, you send them a survey two weeks after the fact. And then, you know, 90% of people didn't get the chance to test, so they will not respond to the survey. Then you send another wave of survey and another wave of survey. And then you have, you know, so now you've got five different tools you're already playing with. And you're trying to get that feedback from a mailer or a Slack message or a Teams message or a WebEx message or somebody talk to their customer support rep. And they say, like, well, I've been testing this product. I want you to relay this feedback to the product team. Or they'll be meeting with their sales rep and say, well, I've been testing this product in beta. I want to relay this feedback to the product team. So you end up with a lot of inputs coming in from various ways and various forms and various channels that you're also trying to make sense of it, right? And then on the other hand, the product leadership team and the engineering leadership team is asking you as a product leader, right? How's the beta program going? And because of all this chaos, you say you have some recency, a lot of recency bias. So it's either, you know, well, we found one, one real bug, nobody's talking to us, or people are just not the same school. But you really don't have the insight and you don't have the data. That's kind of the problem where we got into it at my, you know, first stint was like, you know, that's got to be a better way. And we couldn't find a better solution. It's either, you know, what's out there is too expensive or too archaic or too complex to you. So when I went to my time at Cisco Meraki, I still remember clearly at one juncture, we were about to launch a beta program and we had eight people in one room um, for a full day. And all what we were doing is just processing output from Google Forms for people to sign up and put it into Salesforce in order to send orders to ship product to them, right? Hmm. So I was thinking, I was sitting in that room, I was saying, this is a very expensive data entry exercise, right? And there's got to be a better way. The company is losing so much money on this. The team is not enjoying their time. This is, like what they, this is not what they should be doing. These are all product leads. They are in six figures really high six figures income and they should be talking to the customers they should be prioritizing roadmap they should be talking to engineers so they should not be data processing stuff but stuff needs to be get done right so we have to get get it done 
so that was kind of like, we have two trigger points. I would say big trigger points. One is the first time I encountered the problem firsthand. And the second is when I saw that problem at scale in, in a different organization. And then the third one, when we started thinking about it, is when we talked to really in my circle, friends, different organizations, and they almost all unanimously said, yep, we beta test sucks. It's just the nature of the beast. So then we started thinking about the, the MVP itself. So it's okay, we know there's a problem. Uh, we don't have a lot of data to support that problem at that point. Um, but we said, okay, we know that there's a problem. Let's think about the possible solution, All right? So we started, my co-founder, Ibra and I, as friends. And so we started thinking about the solution. So we started the document that was really the manifesto of the company. And we started charging each other part-time and weekends for probably a couple of months. And then when we have some idea that's kind of was crystallized in our head, we invited our third co-founder, Simone, to join and help us build an MVP. So we spent two years part-time and weekends, not a lot of time, honestly, because everyone was busy with their full-time job. But we spent about two years just building an MVP and getting out there to super close friends to get feedback on that, right? So, and then when we put it out, so one of our friends put it in production and got us laundry list of feedback. So that's when we knew, okay, there's actual demand. We're going to solve a problem here. Let's think about raising around and go do it for real so we can validate even more. So before you got your first round, if I got this correctly, how much time do you think you spent building a first version and getting some feedback from friends and family? Say like 10% to 15% of two-year timeline, right? So think about, you know, it's be 480 or 365, 700 days, 10% of that. Okay. Okay. So, so a couple months, a couple months is, is, okay. Two or three months, probably like in aggregate. So, but we weren't doing it full force because we were just doing it, you know, 10 hours a week, I would say, collectively. Because it was, you know, we had our own full-time jobs at that point, that point, and you know, really busy jobs, right? So we had mm-hmm. to uh, get get going on that front. But yeah, we we validated, I would say, the idea. We put some sort of an MVP out there before we raise any single dollar. And throughout the, those two-year time frame, we tried to interview a lot of other folks, and we interviewed at that time about say fifteen to twenty, and they all validated the the pain point. So we the collection of the input that we got that, hey, there's a problem from different product teams and also the the ability to kind of early test that our ideas mm-hmm. of the solution actually works it was, was the trigger point for us to say like, yeah, let's go make it real and let's raise some funding. But the mm-hmm. fundraising was super quick at that point. We closed our PC round in less than a month. That's, that's an interesting point here. If you could pause here for a second, just to elaborate a little bit, because founders sometimes are good at, you know, building MVP but not really good, even like mentally prepared to go on fundraise. Yeah. What what do you think it takes for a successful pre-seed round? What do you need to have in terms of like product mindset? Like what are the components to make it, to make it like you did in under a month? That's a great question. So I would say like I would classify our experience as an outlier, to be honest, just not the, the normal. But if you think about pre-seed, that's the idea phase, right? And the range of approaching a pre-seed round starts from you just a PowerPoint company, I would say, or maybe like a, a paper company. Like you have an idea on a PowerPoint or, or a slide, Google slide or a paper, all the way to you have some paying customers, right? So some discover the range that we have. 
it depends on the vertical that you're in. If you're, you know, AI versus fintech versus B2B SaaS, which we are in, or you know, B2C or hardware or software, that's all of these verticals are very important in terms of expectation. Uh, so my my experience has been in B2B SaaS. So if you think about that range, if you start from a PowerPoint company, uh, you can definitely raise money, but most likely you'll get more interest in an accelerator, right? Like Techstars, YC, or that's any other, you know, hundred accelerators out there. They'll say, okay, you're still in the idea phase. You still need to get, build an MVP. You need to really move fast if you're interested in this. Happy to take you through that process for two to three months. Here's some money just to pay for two or three people for the, that period of time. And by the way, we're going to take 7% of equity at the end of it if you're around, right? Nothing wrong with that. I think that there's, there's value in that for sure. But if you go to spending more time and build the product and get it to get some sort of validation, which we were aware it's like in the, in the middle of that range, you would be able to go to angels and VCs and start actually pitching the company and pitching the ideas. Okay, this is not an idea, it's actually an MVP. We have something out there. This is what we did in order to validate. This is what we think we are going to do. And we're just asking for money now uh, to pay for ourselves, hire a couple of people, whatever that is to get to market and get to the next milestone, which is paying customers at a certain amount. Obviously, the best way is to go all the way to you have a couple of paying customers already, right? So that's that's a lot of validation that you've already done that, hey, you have a pro the problem that is identified, the solution that is working, and you have a market that, you know, some people are willing to pay for. So I think that's going to be probably the kind of the high end of that range. And if you go with that high end, you'll be able to raise bigger round at the higher valuation. From an investor standpoint, it's all a risk assessment exercise at that point. Most likely, they will not invest in the product or the company or the market. Most likely, the pre-seed, the focus is, I would say, heavily weighted on the founding team themselves. So there's the concept of founder market fit before the product market fit, because they would know, every investor, they would know that, hey, you're still not a product market fit, it's too early, you have to trade on the product and the market and your messaging and all that fun stuff. But at the end of the day, does this team actually function? Is this team well positioned to tackle this specific problem? What makes this team unique in order to invest and back this team so they can tackle this problem? So in our case, the combination of my experience in going into the problem, right? So I intimately know the problem in minute details. I can be a barometer or a, an advocate for the voice of customer. My co-founders have their experience in building large-scale B2B SaaS platforms that they can handle tens of millions of requests a day. So that combination of expertise was unique, but also the two years I've spent working together is a de-risk factor for the investors, right? So like, because the number one failing aspect of pre-seed companies is founder conflict. So mm. we demonstrated that we didn't actually have a conflict. We actually have a functioning team that we can work together for two years and uh, we are equally passionate about the, the project and, and going forward. That is fascinating. So let, let me know if I heard this correctly. So having, having a great, let's say, product or some form of it when you are pitching for a raise is important, but not sufficient because you also need to be a founder market fit, which is you know, you being a person who is, who is qualified, who is better than others at solving this particular problem in this market. And that changes based also on your level of experience of the team. So if mm -hmm. you are early in your career, which is nothing wrong, because there's no age difference or 
limit to start a company. So if you're early in your career, like in your teens or 20s, right? So that's when it becomes more about the pedigree, unfortunately, than anything else from an investor standpoint. Like, did you go to this fancy school? Did you go to that other program? Because that's for the investor class. It's a filter. They say, okay, I'm going to back a team of young and experienced. They're going to make a lot of mistakes, but they are at least, you know, I have a filter on level of internet mm. that they can do, right? So it becomes heavily uh, heavy on the pedigree early in the career, but if you were in mid-career like we were, so now it's like mid-30s when I started with uh, Stomium, it's all about the experience, like what kind of insights that you have through the career that well positions you to do that. It could be also, are you a serial entrepreneur? Have you had past experiences? So you've been through that <laughs> A process and you know how you know the pain and what what learnings that you can do so it's all about the experience at that point in your career. Mm-hmm. but early career mm-hmm. is about pedigree unfortunately Got for it. a professional investor that uh-huh. if one of the audience you know if they are you know like i'm from syria for example i don't i don't have the pedigree if somebody from your audience is anywhere in the world and they're, they're listening don't feel discouraged you only need one investor to say yes so keep going at it. If you have people in your circle, if you know somebody who knows somebody who's into angel investing, you only need to convince one investor or you know a syndicate or a group of investors to back you and and go at it. But an accelerator route, route is very much viable for early career. That's insiders. I hope you're hearing this. You only need one investor, and yes. that won't be the first one, probably. I I heard a lot of people have different numbers, but. A lot of times I hear some some number around a hundred investors or hundred pitches you need to make to to make a round complete. How do you think that's accurate? Like on average, I know you said your your one is more of outlier, but from your perspective, yeah, I think it's it's accurate in terms of the level of effort that you need to put in. I think probably not the number itself is meaningless. I would say, but the the, the notion is. Correct. It then, okay, you need to do a lot of outreach if you don't have a network, if you don't have an inside right, route to any VC in order to bring people in. And then you need to fill the round with a number of smaller checks. Because mm-hmm. even if you have a VC coming in, they are a pre-seed company, they might just write 50 to 75K check, right? And that's that's their sweet spot. So you keep going and keep going and keep going and keep adding and keep adding until you close the round. In our case, we had, because we're, we're very outliers because I had a, a a person in mind who was who's now our board member, and he's a close friend. I worked with them in my career, uh, and I know that he is doing some angel investing. So I kind of approached him that way. It's like, hey, this is what I'm working on. I'd love to get your feedback on it. So he was convinced, and he introduced me to his friend who's, who does angel investing, and he turned out to be the lead investor. And when I closed the lead investor, they have between the two of them a group of eight angels that they all invest together and they say like consider the round closed if we're in right because it's not a it's not a big number we raised a million dollars i mean it's, it's a big number for pre-seed but this for them it's kind of like their sweet spot so that's kind of like how it worked out for us and that's how we moved really really fast in the process it was the first group that we targeted it turned out to be you know a slam dunk and <laughs> we closed the round immediately and we've done moved on to within the company um, so that's kind of also another thing that for the target audience, it's not new knowledge here. I'd say that the goal that you need to think about when you fundraise is get the right investors on the board, close the round as, as quickly as possible, right? Because this is, I see it as a distraction because now we're going into a scene round. I see it as a distraction to 
fundraise. It's not the goal is to fundraise. The goal is to solve the actual pain that your customers have and grow the business and build the business. And the fundraising is a enabler for you as a team to go tackle that in full capacity. So we're very appreciative to our early investors that they enabled us to go and do this full time. Uh, some people, some people even say fundraising can be a full time job. If if you need to raise like quickly enough, then there's there's so much focus you need to put into that. One thing you've mentioned, Ahem, is you basically went to your friend who's an angel. And you asked yes. for advice. And that's that's one thing I wanted to, to discuss with you because I heard this a really interesting approach to fundraising is approaching investors, especially the ones that you know, not with an intent of please invest in me, please, yeah. please, because it's you know, it's it's appearing as needy and you'll get defensive reaction from that. Instead, if you if you come from the position of, hey, give me feedback on this, if it sounds appealing, they'll say, like, hey, can I invest or let me introduce you to someone? If it's exactly. not, They'll tell you what's wrong. And the thing I love about this is you can go back to them once you're done and kind of ask for advice again when it's like you have a second yeah. chance, basically. So what exactly do you think about this? Yeah. No, that's exactly what happened. So I went to my friend and told them, and by the way, it was not like we were not in touch for a long time. We were at that point having chatted in like a couple of years. And I texted him and said, okay, I'm working on something. Love to get your feedback on my pitch deck. It was just... A practice run, and was I was sincerely going at it as a practice run. So I gave a practice run. He listened to it, gave me feedback, and he said, "You know, fix this stuff, uh, A, B, and C, and then once you're ready, let me know so I can introduce you to two other folks that you can practice with." So I did that, and he did, and he introduced me. But the trigger for me was he joined actually the second call, which he didn't he didn't declare or tell me that he was planning on doing so. So I saw that as a signal, okay, he's looking, he's interested, he's checking if I could take input and up update my pitch deck based on that input, which I did. So I did the second one with two people in first circle. They gave me a lot of great insight. And then I did another third one with other co-founders that, that I know, or other founders that I know in the network, and they gave me their insight. And at that point, I, told, I went back to them and told them, I had three rounds of reviews. I think I'm ready to actually go pitch. Are you interested or not? And then when you say like, somewhat interested, but I want you to meet this person who is going to be, you know, the lead. And if he's interested, I'm in. At that point, there's this history. That is something that every founder should probably do. Not to go straight and ask for money, but more ask for feedback. Because yeah. if, if your pitch deck is good and if your offer is solid, you'll eventually get just more offers. Would that put you yeah. in kind of in a strong position of like, well, if you want to invest, we can, we can, of course, negotiate how it's going to be structured. So that's... Yeah, and fundraising is actually a kind of like a, a momentum sport, if you think about it. Like if even if mm -hmm. you pitch to somebody in your network and they, let's say if you're raising half a million dollars and they, you're able to close 100K from them, you can go to the next investor and, and now your pitch is different. At the end of the pitch, it's like, hey, we're raising 500K. We already closed 100K, by the way. And so that they said, okay, well, I'm not the first check and somebody else believes in this team. Okay, let me write 50K or 25K. <laughs> and then the next one is going to be easier. The next one's going to be easier. And guess what? When you get 400K, you're just looking to close that last 100K in the, in the round. This becomes easier and easier. So I've seen actually some, some founders who use that momentum investing to change the valuation in each milestone. So let's say that they want to raise um, you know, a million and a half or $2 million, let's say. And then they close the first million at one valuation, and then they go to the other 500K 
at the higher, slightly higher valuation, so one and a half million out of the two. And then the last 500K, they go slightly higher valuation. So you go 2 million, you close it at the higher valuation, but the average valuation that you have for the round is where they want it to be at the, be at the beginning. You end up with, you have to manage those different cap tables and different stuff. It's going to get messy, but they've used it as a, as a mechanism basically to game the valuation game. It's like, okay, early investors, you get in a lower valuation. Thank you. As a, you know, and then later investors, like, you know, we're going to close yes. the round. We know that. So it doesn't have to be that, that low valuation. That's what I thought. It's kind of giving a good sign of appreciation to early investors, the, one, the, the early believers, right? Especially the ones who first put, put in their check because it shows that it shows that you value, like they, they believe in you. What do you think will change for you going into the seed round with all your experience of fundraising in your previous round? What do you think you will do differently this time? Oh, well, the fundraising environment is massively different, right? So when we raised in 2021, there's the height of the fundraising hype, I would say. So money was abundant and was very easy. Stock market was ripping. So angels were happy with their portfolios. They were more loosey-goosey with their money overall. VCs, we had a lot of what they call tourist VCs, where they are late-stage investors or private equity funds or newly fund managers that they're going into the industry and everybody's tried, trying to outbid everybody. So I think today it's kind of the pendulum swinging the other way around, which is because of the public market valuations went down so hard, so quick, right? So if you think about the average SaaS public valuation went down to you know 67%. So all of late stage investing, which is series B and above, I would say B, C, and D, all the letters of the alphabet, it's pretty much dried up. It's really, really hard to raise money now in late stage investing, unless you have outstanding business and you're growing at an outstanding clip, it's really hard to raise money. And then growth stage investing, which is like A and B, the expectation is getting more tough. So I don't have data, but I've heard from the grapevines is that you know, if you're A round, you need to be closer to 2 million ARR. It used to be a million. That's kind of like the, the permission to go to the A round, uh, so to speak. But now it's getting harder to do so, and the valuations are going lower. So that trickled a little bit to seed and pre-seed, but not as much to late stage investing. So if you think if you see the reporting from DocSend or from SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, the value average valuation for a seed startup, let's say it's going, it went down about twenty percent, not eighty percent, right? But if you see the late stage went down 70, 80%, mid stage 40, 60%. So the, obviously the valuation expectation is difficult. Now it's much harder. The round size also is coming down a little bit because people are now more diligent about deploying capital. They need to know that there is some, that, that capital being raised wanted to be deployed for the next milestone, not for you know, excessive spending on something that doesn't matter. And also the expectation in terms of traction. It depends also on, on your vertical, I would say. So for B2B SaaS, it's, it's, it depends, right, on, on the investor. But they need to have a product and market for sure. And they need to have active users for sure. And they need to have some level of revenue for sure. It doesn't need to be really high, but it needs to be some. And, and that depends on the investor itself, bro. So we've been chatting with some investors. Some of them are still in, in seed round, looking at the team as number one, but I, see, I think less so. Some of them are really uh, focused on MRR and ARR kind of metrics, 
which I think it's a bad way to look at the seed company because it's still pretty product market fit. But that's kind of the kind of the range, right? It's going to be some level of revenue to a you know I've heard like forty thousand MRR kind of the range. What do you think would be the tips for SaaS consultants who are listening and going into pre-seed round right now? If if they have an idea, maybe have some some sort of an MVP and they want to raise funds to to go with their journey, what do you think will be the things that need to they need to keep in mind in the current market environment? Pre-seed. So if you're raising pre-seed, I still go back to say like focus on the founder market fit first. Mm-hmm. Say like, why does this team matter? Why does this team is need to be backed? Why does this team have unique insight to deliver? Right. So that's kind of like V number one. And number two, think about the market and the product, right? So it's less on the market, I would say, because even if you paint, you know, a billion dollar market or a trillion dollar market, it's all speculation at this point. It's really, really, really early competition. If it's a big market, most likely there is competition. So you need to be aware of that. You can't be the only one in, you know, a very massive market that nobody has sought in. So that's the odds of that happening is really slow, really slow. So, if, you know, if you think about it from an investor standpoint, you pre-seed and you have 10 pitches and everyone's saying that we're going to be the world's first whatever AI thing that you're thinking about or crypto thing that you're thinking about, chances are you're not, right? <laughs> because they've seen all the pitches. So yeah, I would focus a lot on the team, team dynamics, product velocity and learning velocity. Like how can you, what do you call, you know, what kind of feedback loops you have between yourself as a as a team and your target audience, right? And how quickly can you learn? How can you how quickly can you iterate? And that's something that you can demonstrate. That's great. So for us, for example, going from PC to C, we didn't have when we did PC. We can point to our website. We can show to any investor that hey, see our history from the moment we launched or actually soft launched until today. Every month we're releasing features improvements fix and bugs every single month there's a release that we have we actually release internally every two weeks but every month there's something that we announce and that's interesting that is exciting that's going to solve a pain point it's a gap in the part that we had and now we're improving on it so that velocity is super important another trick i would say is in order to help folks kind of alleviate the anxiety which a trick i use a lot is ask permission for people to record your interview Right. So if you're having an interview for the prospect or you're having an interview for feedback or you're having an interview for just sharing the ideas, ask permission from the interviewee to record that session and store it. So we have now you know, tens of recordings and we share it with our team and we all learn from it. And, and that's available for us to share with any investor if they're interested, like what happened with this opportunity, why they are a fit. I don't see the use case. Well, here's the interview that we have with them. You can see clearly from their perspective with their own words that this is a problem that they have. This is what they do today. It's really not a great idea. And you can see their raw reaction to your idea line. So I think that's also another trick which you can have cheap leads, you know, just record that session. That is that is brilliant. It's like proof of demand, and you get it for free by you know interviewing people on that and just validating kind of the idea, especially the pre-seed. That that's brilliant. One thing that is really a good insight is found the market fit, and you you put a lot of emphasis for it for the pre-seed. A lot of times we find founders talking about the product, like 
even if they're not talking about features, if they're, if they're talking about the problem all the time, like it's already good. We're making progress here, right? We're not talking features, but you mentioned that it's important, but not sufficient, but they also need to talk why they're qualified to make this happen. Because you might persuade investors that, yeah, this is a problem, but why you, right? Why we cannot just go and just choose someone else for that? Yeah, like why would any other group of team, if people coming to me with the same idea not succeed? Like why, what makes you unique? If you're going at it from a, as an outsider to the problem, right? Uh, so that's, as I would say, like founder market fit at pre-seed and slightly at seed, very important, then quickly moves to product market fit at seed and A. And then from that point on, is going to be channel market fit, right? So it's going to be like product channel market fit. Like how is the product mapping to the channel that reaches your audience to fuel the growth and acceleration of growth? I admire how you how you grew as a founder in in those like short two years with the company. Uh, do you do you find some interesting books recently that elevated your understanding of how to run a business, how to lead a team? And any any good reads on SaaS entrepreneurship, being a founder that you could recommend to the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So we got the classics: Lean Startup, Zero to One. These are classic books that you need to read. I read all of them. I would say on top of that. Tony Fidel Build, which I have here on the, on the desk, is really good, really, really good read that you should do. And I would say that there's another book called Founder-Led Sales. I think that's also an interesting read if, you, if you're in the B2B SaaS space. This is really good read. So these are kind of like the top four I would think about. You can learn a lot. <laughs> you can learn a lot by reading. You can learn a lot by doing. You're going to do a lot of mistakes, obviously, but this is a, a big learning experience experience outside so i'm very good learning books is just half of the story you need to also go and implement what you learned that's what sometimes we forget is like we think if we learn one book a week we're getting you know jeff bezos kind of level like we gotta we gotta implement i tell you like it, it changed like the way the way i was reading entrepreneurship books before starting the company and after is different right because the way before was just for entertainment slash education after is I'm reading to see how can I apply any of the insights or learnings to the business. Is this relevant for me or not? So that's kind of like the, the lens changes. Mm. What I like to do when I read a book right now is I find one to three things that, that I can implement right now. And sometimes I can just stop there. Like sometimes yeah. I, can, I can be half through the book. If I see three things I can do this week. Perfect. Why, why keep doing like reading through the book and having like 50 points that you won't implement in one chunk? Like if you, if you can stop implementing and then revisit, you can do that as well. So I think it's kind of, it's, it's shaping you when you start getting into action, you realize you don't need to learn it from, from first till the last character. You just need to find some things you can do, you can do for yeah. yourself. And you can skip chapter. Like I was, I was reading early on the book called Traction, which just talks about all the different channels that you can mm. actually find users. And some of them are just like, okay, I read the title. It's not going to apply to us, right? So, okay, going to having a booth in a trade show. We don't have the funding for it. We don't have the money. We're still early for that. We just can't skip it. I can go back and, and read it. Or go to billboard ads, right? The traditional advertising. We're not going to spend money on that. Let's skip that now. We can go do, do other things, right? So that, it changes your prioritization. It changes also your, your perspective on things, which is it's really fun. I think I learned that lesson when I was reading Ray Dalio's Principles. I'm not yeah. sure if you did, but that's a yeah, pretty sizable book. 
And back then, I thought I need to learn from the beginning till the end, and only then I make a conclusion. And I downloaded an audiobook, and it's like 21 hours of, of audiobook. And it's like, if you listen for three hours straight, you'll be listening for a week just for that thing. That's like half a day. And, yeah. and I found that when I revisited that, I could just implement for the first couple hours. I already saw some things I can do because there's so much in it, but I didn't know that. And that's, that's, that this was different right now. If you were to, let's say you could change something in the past for your company. That, that's, that's the exercise that we do with founders is like going <laughs> back from your current experience. Let's say you can travel yeah. back in time and give yourself like one piece of advice when you get started, when you're thinking about the MVP. And yeah. what are the things you would, you would, you would tell like, two-year younger self about, about your company and the way you, sh you should do it? That's an interesting question. So when I was starting, so I, like, I, was, I was a PM for a long time, but I wasn't deep into UX. I read some UX stuff for fundraising. So it helped me uh, understand the language when we hired actual UX professionals on our team and to help me appreciate what they do. I would have probably spent an equal amount of time learning about growth and marketing, um, which I've been doing for the past probably six months. Um, because for you know somebody who's been at, at in the product for a long time, marketing and sales has been usually handled for you. Uh, you're already in a safe environment. You're just worrying about prioritization and road mapping and addressing customer demand. But once you build something, you already have that infrastructure established for you, right? So you have the product marketing folks, you have the PR folks, you have the marketing operations, you have the salespeople, everyone is just in sales mode and you can start seeing that traction going together if you did your job right. Um, so what I was taking that part for granted, which is a really important part of the business. I, I would have spent an equal amount of time understanding that world and start to think about how to get the word out sooner than we did. Because for us, we, we spent the first six months with a small group of target audience to refine the thinking, to find what's important, what's not important. And then we spent another six months in basically building the public, and then we launched after a year. So I would say if I would do it again, I would start marketing probably month two or three, get the word out, build the momentum. Even if it's something that's not there yet, we can say it's coming soon, right? So that's going to be a good so always think about go to market, in my opinion, sooner than you think. So, so the kind of if to conclude that it basically means put more, more thoughtful, like more, more effort into marketing and sales, and start doing that earlier than than later. Yeah. Earlier than you you're comfortable with. I see. I see. A lot of times when I'm working with SaaS founders and I help them build their product, their MVP. Sometimes I even say. We, we can start marketing even before it's fully launched yet, even when we even have some kind of wireframes, designs, to get some traction. There, there's a lot of resistance, like, but what if they want to try it? There is waiting. It's, it's uncomfortable because it's like, but what if it doesn't work, right? But what if it, what, what if it does work and there's crickets, right? What do we yeah. do with that? So it's, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's why like voice of customers is really, really, really important. So that's why, like I said, you know, for early stage companies, getting the word out, and getting a feedback loop with your target audience is critical. Uh, even if it's a small subset of people, let's say four or five people, that's what's a customer. That's important, right? They will tell you something that is interesting. And I can tell you, because she had an idea when we did like the first six months, we had, you know, a monthly meeting with a very small group, four or five people. 
where they all come in and they will chime in. So when we did our wireframing, I just thought, okay, this is what we're thinking about the, the sign-up process and you go here. So I thought it's gonna be like really easy. And they said, oh, wait, 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 we spent like the entire hour just thinking of and getting feedback on the sign-up process, which we thought when we were building it, that it is like really simple three clicks. And it's like, why three clicks? And why do you need this information? Why that information? This is fiction, this is, doesn't make sense. So it's a, so it's got a lot of insight, a lot of data that we have just from a sign-up process, right? And then when we got to our product, actual product, we get equal amount of feedback. So the things that you think are natural and easy when you start sharing with other people, you, you start, start seeing a lot of perspective because you are biased in, in your development process. You're falling in love with the product, you're falling in love with their idea or some design, and it makes sense to you because you're in it every day. But if someone just looks at it with fresh eyes, they would see it as a first time. It's like, whoa, what is this? What is that? Does it make sense? The language here, the language there, right? So that's all just cold feedback that you have to take. That is pretty unanimous feedback that I hear, that a lot of times we get biased because we're so close to a product every day. We're so used to that. It, it feels, it feels, you know, it feels so natural and it feels intuitive to use, but not to the person who sees it for the first time. So you always need to keep the perspective. Unless for, you are your own your own user, then it's not intuitive. No, but yeah, but still, but still, if you're on a user, but you see it every day, you kind of you kind of know how it works. Ahem, if people want to connect with you, it can be fellow SaaS insiders who want to offer help, or maybe be, yeah. be your maybe be your users, your testers. We get sometimes SaaS VCs also joining us today, not today, yeah. but in general, who might be maybe interested in joining you in your seed round. What is the best yeah. way to connect and, and and have a conversation? Anywhere they can find you on LinkedIn. And pretty responsive usually. It's not spam. You can just email me, ahem at stovey.io. Very responsive to email. And if you want Twitter, also you can find me ahem two 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 four two. Oh, what do you think would be the concluding thoughts? How what would be the note you would want to to conclude our conversation on? I would say so. The conversation went through the fundraising round and then some insights for different audio for early stage, I would say founders. So focus on founder market fit, uh, if you're raising pre-seed, uh, somewhat if you're raising seed, really get that feedback loop with your early audience. When you're early, nothing beats talking to somebody on a phone or on a Zoom call. It's easier now than ever. Get out there and do it. And if you have some audience that's going to be in a trade show, just go to the trade show and talk to them face-to-face. -face. They will give you some insights and they'll give you some feedback. So do the things that don't scale, I would say, which is like Paul Graham, famous quote, do the things that don't scale early on because you are going to learn a ton. And then when you start to get traction, start to think about things that are systematic and that, that could scale, that can give you feedback at a, at, a, at a more processed way and more organized way. Don't worry about scale early on, worry about solving the pain, solving the problem, finding your audience and reaching out to them. And once you get to that scale and you want to systemize your voice of customer program, check us out. We'd love to talk. Ahem, Eric Susi, everyone. Ahem, I thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. Oh, thank you, Vlad. Really appreciate it. SaaS Insiders, we'll see you in the next ones. 